0: How Great Thou Art. What a beautiful song. What a challenging song. What an uplifting song. As we've come together this morning to offer worship unto God, it's always our humble plea and petition that it will be pleasing and acceptable, and it's our desire to offer it only in the way that He has stated in His Word that He wishes it to be. As you probably have noticed, there are a number of our families that are away on vacations today and traveling in other ways, and we do wish all of them a very speedy and safe trip, so they soon could be back here with us. And yet, as we also appreciate our unusual service times today, let's keep in mind, as Alan mentioned it a moment ago, at 2 o'clock service this afternoon for our third Sunday singing here in Putnam County today, Colors and the Cross. You've probably already noticed that is listed in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left. I would invite you to consider with me for the next few moments powerful lessons about colors, and not just any colors, but the colors that, in fact, we find associated with the cross. Let's begin our lesson in the following way with some introductory remarks. Wouldn't it be safe to say that it is not possible to overstate? It is not possible to overemphasize the significance and the importance of the cross of our Lord. What a beautiful event, and yet what agony was in it. It often calls us to recoil as we think about the agony that He faced and the excruciating way that in fact He did it. But the cross we find in words like these. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 17 and 18, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He went on to say in that same verse, Not with wisdom of men, but as he highlighted the nature of it for the purpose of the following, that the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Isn't it an awful thing to contemplate doing or acting in such a way as to make the cross of little effect? May you and I never live like that. May we never conduct ourselves that way. Because the next verse goes on to say, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Today, as we reflect on the cross, I hope to do it with a perspective of colors. Perhaps to a place in our thinking and our heart, some new viewpoints on it that brings to mind some old truths that we so often heard. But let's do it using the colors. When you think about the cross of our Lord, why don't we start to think about this color? Now, I picked black to start. And we all know, I suppose, that black's really the absence of color. But nonetheless, we appreciate that there's some great appreciations to be found in it, as developed on that slide. Throughout the Word of God, we on many occasions find darkness to be associated with evil. Darkness is what's associated with the devil. It is to the text of Acts 26, 18, I would draw your attention. As Paul stood before Agrippa and preached with such strength with such directness, it was he, that is Paul, who affirmed that it was the God of heaven through Christ who has caused me and challenged me to open their eyes, the eyes of those that were darkened. But he went on to say, to preach and to proclaim the message of light and not the message of the devil. And so we see contrasted the darkness versus the light that which was of God versus that which was of the devil. And almost immediately to the matter of the cross and to the other issues that surround it, we easily can contemplate the blackness, the darkness of sin, which goes right with the devil. Look at this development with me. In 2 Peter 2, verse number 4, Peter, in commenting, stated there are some angels who chose to sin but he went on in that same verse to say that not only was it the case that they had sinned, but they'd been reserved in chains of darkness. So notice those that had sinned were reserved in chains of darkness. Darkness, again, is seemingly attached to or at least associated with the activities of evil. Not only that, notice the next one. Aren't you and I were today? that so often it's under the cover of darkness when men choose to behave in such an unseemly way. They don't go steal at least in many cases in the daytime. They wait until it's nine, under the cover of darkness. It seems as though even in Luke 22, verse 53, that particular idea is in fact presented. To say it all those ways brings us to note the next one. Darkness is used in the Bible. This absence of light is stated in such a way that we're admonished to refrain from it. Listen to this commandment. Ephesians 5 verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. There is darkness, you see, that is associated with and follows the pursuit of evil, that which is of the devil. And notice this blackness. This darkness, finally we get to turn our thoughts to something sweeter. What is it that removes the darkness? What is it that takes it away and to the cross we must go? Wasn't it the case that this notion of evil, this notion of sin that in fact so often comes upon the lives of individuals, it's in the cross we see the blackness is able to be lifted. Look at verses like Matthew 26 verse 28. In light of the events right before the cross, Jesus said as He spoke about the nature of what would be, of course, the elements of the Lord's Supper, He spoke there in verse number 28 that this blood is the New Testament. And He said, shed for many for the remission of sins. The blackness that comes in life when a person chooses to disobey God Chooses to act in a way that is in violation and transgression, there is no cleansing of that darkness except by virtue of the blessings through the cross. All of the particular attitudes of life, we may wish to do better, but the guilt that comes from those transgressed matters, they'll never be cleansed apart from the cross. That was a monumental event. Notice also in Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. As Paul addressed the church in Rome, didn't he not speak about the character and the grandeur and the greatness, again attaching to our mind the nature of that cross? For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? For the ungodly. And that includes each and every one who's again reached that age of having sin in their life. But notice verse 8. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where did He die? On the cross. And yet as He commended His love toward us, we notice the blackness is easily to be appreciated. I had it in my life and you had it in yours. Blackness. The evil attached to the sinful character of transgressing the things of God. As that slide rolls forward, there's of course a rather great statement made. What about the outer darkness? The God of heaven dispatched the second member thereof so that the human family could have the means whereby they could be forgiven and saved. What about those who refused it? Those who, in fact, neglect that great salvation, Hebrews 2 verse 4, where will they be cast? Matthew 25 30 says, Outer darkness. You see, they've lived in a way of darkness here on earth. They've lived separated from the greatness and the wonderful blessing spiritually found in Jesus and they're going to ultimately go to a place where that will be permanent and outer. You may appreciate that word outer highlights an utterness to this. It's a fullness, it's a complete maturity of darkness. Too horrible to contemplate. And as we close that slide, you'll notice. I would suggest to you that as we reflect on the cross, one of the first colors, or at least things related to color, that we can appreciate is right there as we picture the cross in our mind, should be a vivid character of the blackness that Jesus was dealing with that day. What's the next color? Let's look at this color as well. Let's go to the extreme opposite of that one. What about white? Now, again, we know that white's a combination of all the colors, but yet there's something very sweet and very beautiful about the color white. Let's develop it like this. As you and I have often learned to appreciate it, white seems to relate rather frequently to that which is pure, that which is wholesome, that which is without contamination. In fact, we often appreciate it that way. The color that brides wear... As indicative of her purity, the fact that she as one adorned now for this man who is to be her husband, she dresses in white. That purity maybe takes us back to Daniel 12, verse number 10. Even in the days of the Old Testament, wasn't it there that white was related to purity? Sweetly noted, wasn't it, as that book came to a close, that those who are in fact not in the way of wickedness are described as white. And of course, as often as we think of the Revelation through its 22 chapters, frequently white is a color to be noted, and some examples are now about to be seen. It makes an interesting point to ask what color clothes does God wear? I realize God's a spirit being. I realized that, in fact, it would not be appreciated the way that you and I wear clothes, but when God, in fact, was perceived as wearing clothes, either in Old or New Testament, what color was it always? I was never able to find an exception. In Daniel 7, verse number 9, when Daniel saw that remarkable vision in which... The Son of Man passed through the clouds to the action of days. He came to one wearing white. And interesting. In Matthew 17, verse number 2, when our Lord was transfigured there on the Mount, his clothes became glisteringly white. In fact, so much so that it was impossible for the dim to have been any whiter. Think of how white that must be. Finally, You appreciate in the Revelation, as we're about to see in just a moment, heavenly beings in Revelation 4, verse 4, wore garments of white. I might say all of that to say this. In the midst of this discussion, this character of white, consider Jesus our Savior. Jesus had no sin, that blackness that we talked about a moment ago, All of that evil that was characteristic of the way that men often choose to live was nowhere near him, at least by his choice. He had no sin. Perfect in every way. If ever one had the opportunity and capability of reasonably wearing the fullness of white, it was him. And so as we think about the color white, look at the nature of some of those middle statements. Doesn't the cross at the same time highlight the blackness of men's sin, but the absolute perfection of the whiteness of Jesus, the sinlessness of his life? Never once did he say anything amiss. Never once did he think anything amiss. Never once did he act in a way that was amiss. Perfect and white, pure in every way. And yet, doesn't that remind us of, quite frankly, these two initial thoughts in the lesson Of the challenge that's ours by the same token you and I must keep blackness at bay and also pursue that which is of white in Matthew 5 verse 8 aren't we told there that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God these two colors on the one hand black on the other white doesn't it point a very strong consideration again to the cross What about color number three? After these two, why don't we come to blue or purple, as the Bible will often call it. When you and I encounter a color like this one, we often appreciate that in the Bible it's associated, and quite frankly, even extra-biblical sources too, but it's associated with royalty. Those in high positions in civil places would wear blue, they, of course, would adorn themselves in rather specially prepared purple. Esther 8 verse 15 is one example. What color did Mordecai wear after his evil enemy Haman had been hanged? The text informs us that Mordecai was adorned in blue. Not only that, in Ezekiel 23, one more time, as that wicked but evil Assyrian empire was referenced, what color were they wearing? The text says, again, it was of blue. You and I often know in the ancient world that then those that were kings and those that were in high places would adorn themselves in blue. As you and I come to think about our Savior, though, there are some references and some usages of purple and blue that still shock us and cause us to recoil in the horror of it. In Matthew 15, verse 20, Those involved in the crucifixion placed that purple robe on him. They stripped his clothes off of him and mocked him by putting this old purple robe on him. You're a king, all right. And of course, they quickly took it back off of him and put his own clothes back on him. They only had done it to make fun of him. That wasn't the only case. As they were taking him to the crucifixion, they placed a purple robe on him. Here was truly the one who really was a king and they were just insulting him. They were only belittling him. They were only reviling him. And he really was the king of the universe. He really is the king of everything. Isn't it rather fascinating to notice that the very one who died for us, the very one who was nailed to that cross, really was a king. Oh, they pretended in a way that he was, and they seemingly enjoyed what they were able to do to elevate themselves above him. After all, they were putting him to death, not the reverse. And yet he really was the king. He really was royalty. In John 17, verse number 4, isn't it true? Our Savior made reference as he prayed to God on that night before he was crucified. He remembered the glory he had in heaven. And he longed again to at least appreciate that and to have it redound under the benefit of the human family. Blue. As you and I think about royalty, could I ask you to contemplate? How often have you and I ever seen the case when in earth's matters, the king of a certain country would die for the benefit of his citizens? Does that happen very often? How often have you ever seen it happen when a king would voluntarily give his life for the benefit and well-being of those who were his citizens? And yet here on the cross, a king died voluntarily, John 10, verses 17 and 18. He gave his life for the benefit of those whom he loved so dearly, the color blue. No wonder it brings us to Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, in which this statement is made, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The king gave his life for you and me. In addition to the blackness of sin and the whiteness of its purity of him, we notice that he really was a royal ruler. No wonder, then, the revelation would lead us to appreciate this. He is called literally on that occasion King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.15, he is lifted high as the one and only heavenly potentate King of kings. Paul wrote that to Timothy My, you and I, as we imagine the cross in our mind, think of the color blue and the color purple. A king died for me, and he died for you. For that reason, we ought never think of ourselves as unworthy. You're so special, and so am I, that a king died for you. And therefore, it should fill us with a desire to please what that king demands of us. After the color blue, let's come to another color. Probably we each would have guessed this one was going to occur at some point. How about red? The color red. I suppose from nearly the beginning of time, one of the issues that so readily and quickly touches to the color of red is blood. My suspicion is if you polled 100 people, and said, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when I think of it when I mention the color red? Probably many would say the word blood. We almost automatically associate red with blood, do we not? And yet the Bible does the same. In 2 Kings 3, we notice on that occasion that events transpired in such a way that something that occurred was red as blood. More than once, waters, by the power of God, were turned into red or turned into blood. And as all that happened, the color of it was directly associated with the event. No wonder when you think about red. It takes us back to that lesson text that was read in our hearing earlier this morning. Did you notice the interesting way the phrases were used? As Paul wrote to the Colossians, he pointed out there was the blood of the cross, Now, we understand our Savior was nailed to the cross, and therefore His blood, of course, was readily apparent. And yet, as we notice the benefit and blessing of it, doesn't it cause us to at least think of blood and the color that goes with it, that which is red. Oh, what a need and what a necessity there is for forgiveness. For as we've noticed earlier, blackness goes with separation from God. Aren't you thankful there's a means of forgiveness and it's the thoroughfare through the color red. The color, the thoroughfare through the blood that goes with that idea. Let's develop that in the following way. In Exodus 12, verses 1 and following, even in the heart of the Old Testament, we remember in such a beautiful fashion there was the coming of that tenth plague. The firstborn are going to die, but who is it? all of those for which there's no blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And therefore there was a command, you make sure as you kill that Passover lamb, you take some hyssop and you put blood on the doorpost and the lintel, both sides and the top. Everywhere that occurred. There was a passing over of the death character of God that night, and there was life. But everywhere there was no blood on the doorpost. There was the death of the firstborn, both of man and beast. The essentiality of blood, for without it, you and I notice exactly what occurred. Don't you love the statement that God on that occasion had made, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, Exodus 12 verse 13. May I suggest to you that you and I still require God to see the blood. We should desire so critically that when He looks at you and me, when God peers down from the portal of heaven and looks upon your life and mine, we need Him to see the blood. Oh, not my blood or yours, but the blood of His Son, the blood of Jesus. In fact, isn't it true that we notice that He purchased the church with that blood? Acts 20, 28, doesn't it directly tell us, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now remember, the church isn't the building. It's you and me. And he bought me with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, it was with his blood. And when he looks down, I want him to see, the, when God looks down, I want him to see the blood of his son For I want to remain covered in it, don't you? 1 John 1 verse 7 says, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. I sometimes imagine it, at least in my feeble mind, sometimes you and I have been to places where there's a waterfall, And you're able to walk under it and to allow that water to pour down upon you. As Christians, as long as we walk in the light, the blood of Christ always covers us. But there is, of course, the need to walk in the light. There's the need to walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, Romans 8 verse 1. And if we do, the proverbial red blood of Jesus covers me and covers you keeping us cleansed and keeping us holy, keeping us sanctified and keeping us directed as we should. The color red. As you notice near the bottom of that slide, that necessity is highlighted and it was such a sweet thing to the Hebrew writer, wasn't it? Hebrews 9.22 says, "...without the shedding of blood is no remission." Without that precious shed blood of Christ, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no hope of heaven. And oh, how dearly you and I need then the cleansing power. No wonder Paul started the Ephesian letter by saying, in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have forgiveness of sins, that whom refers to Jesus. Maybe as we close that slide, we can then readily remember that Revelation 7 points out to you and me a beautiful, beautiful picture. John, what you see right in a book. As Revelation 7 closes, John saw a large number gathered around the throne. And who were these, John? It says they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Washed in what? He didn't mention water on that occasion. He said blood, but how does one contact that blood? Romans 6 tells us it's in baptism. John had the precious and sweet privilege of seeing a group of people who were saved from sin because they had attended to obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. One by one, these colors have highlighted for us an amazing set of events surrounding the cross. And yet, as we come to one more color, What about gold? Now, you may immediately wonder, where is the gold in relation to the cross? What might gold have had to do with that event? I submit to you it's entirely possible to develop the following thoughts, and I'd like to at least suggest them for your consideration. When you and I today think of gold, we think of something so precious. We think of something so remarkable. It's so valuable. As you think about weddings, the lady and the gentleman, the bride and the groom, if you please, it's rather common and traditional for the exchanging of rings. It's pretty common for those rings to be gold. Now, they're plated in gold, and often the officiant will say something to the effect of the very valuable metal that's used in this is symbolic of the value that goes with the love that's being exchanged and declared this day. Consider with me from the Song of Solomon 3, verse 10. Love and gold were there linked together. Love and gold. As you think about the cross, may we always, of course, easily remember that there was the greatest manifestation of the love of God on that occasion. The absolute declaration from the God of heaven, I love you, and this is how much I love you. He gave a part of himself, the second member of the Godhead, gave his life that day for you and for me, carrying my sins and yours. He didn't deserve to die, but we did. And God loved us enough to make that unforgettable declaration of it that day. And so, what about gold? Doesn't it remind us of some other statements Jesus had made? For God so loved the world that he gave His only begotten Son, John 3:16. Notice there that God's love exemplified itself as He gave His Son. What a deep love that is. And isn't it true that that's used in Ephesians 5 for all of us husbands? You love your wife, how? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That love, one more time, perhaps would make us think of gold and the purity and the absolute exquisiteness that goes with that color. Finally, you might notice, even as we noticed earlier today, we love Him because He first loved us. First John four nineteen highlights that truth, and that was a critical part of what John brought before those who were his hearers on that occasion. And today, it should be our desire, too, to consider very remarkably these colors. Let's summarize some of these thoughts on this closing slide. I'm sure as you contemplate the colors that we have considered this morning, we started with blackness. That's evil. It reminds us of the devil. But then we transition to the purity and the righteousness and the godliness of the Son of God who as pure and as white as imaginable gave all that he had to take away that blackness of man. He was a king, you know, and entirely right to be clothed in purple and blue. And that color should remind us that a king died for you and me because as he shed that red blood of his, that blood that was sinless and perfect, in every way it is through the nature of that blood that you and I can appreciate the detergent for sin. That's the only agent that will cleanse it. And indeed, all of that manifests the gold character of his love, a love that is absolutely exquisite and perfect. There might be one in the audiences today who perhaps upon thinking of these colors has come to realize what was done for you and the kind of condition in which you right now are. If you have never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, Don't you want to come close and near to the one following His commandments such that you can enjoy the spiritual blessings available in Him? You can be white, and you can be the one to appreciate what happened from the one wearing blue. You know that plan of salvation demands you believe in Him as the Son of God with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then submissively be baptized. When you do that, He will add you to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Today we'd be honored to celebrate as that were to happen for some person that's gathered here today. But if you have in fact become a member of the body of Christ, you have been a Christian, but maybe you have forgotten some of these colors. You no longer live whitely, but maybe you started to live in blackness again. Maybe you've forgotten the redness of His blood and what it signified. Maybe you've failed to understand the gold or the blue that was characteristic of the cross. Today, if that's characteristic of your life, why not make a change? Come back to what you once knew. Appreciate the sweetness and the power of life attached to the Master. If we could pray to God on your behalf you're commanded you must repent of those sins if they're public in character, confess them, and beseech us to pray to God for you and God will hear and He'll forgive. Today, if there'd be anybody in the audience that would wish to come, we would be honored to assist you and we would implore you to do it now while together we stand and while we sing.